the speaker here this weekend. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Uh, Jill, my wife's at the back. And you might see our four boys and little daughter around as well. We were uh, members here at St John's 15 years ago. I was uh, uh, an Oak Hill student and uh, we'd come from an inner city parish in Blackburn and so they wanted to give us a different experience of life and uh, places at St John's. And it was wonderful. We uh, felt very welcomed and at home and we got involved in a, a midweek um, a Bible study group and, uh, and we stayed around for the three years and uh, it's lovely to see uh, friends uh, here who were here 15 years ago. So thank you for, for inviting me. Um, I should say uh, I am from the north. Um, if you want to find out more about the north, then I'm happy to... <laughs> Happy to talk to you about it. Um, uh, uh, it brings with it an accent. I, I did preach. I said last night I preached in the uh, interregnum before um, Tom arrived. I call him Watsy, so I, that's just a translation issue. Um, <laughs> but there were translation issues when I came to preach. I preached on the book of Philippians, and uh, yeah, I was talking about pride and humility and the need. Uh, as Christians, uh, I said we shouldn't boast. Um, and of course, uh, I had to translate slightly. And uh, and uh, boasting in the north is boasting in the <laughs> in the south. So, uh, so if there are things like that, uh, then do come and speak to me. I could, could put that on the uh, pigeonhole and the questions uh, later, <laughs> later on. Uh, but we are looking at the book of Ruth uh, this weekend. It is a wonderful little book. I first came across it uh, twenty years ago. Um, uh, I got into listening to sermons after I became a Christian at university um, in uh, St Andrews in Scotland and um, uh, a friend of mine uh, gave me some tapes to listen to. I started getting into listening to sermons and I listened to four uh, tapes uh, on, um, I can tell how long ago it was, uh, by, uh, by Sinclair Ferguson um, on the book of Ruth and since then they've been produced into a book which is at the back, Faithful God, and they had a profound effect on me, really, because it was the first time that I'd heard uh, expositions of a story. I'd heard sermons on, 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 on the letters of Paul, um, even on passages in the Gospels, but on a whole story, uh, bringing out the character of God and showing how this story, which, was, uh, at, uh, which happened at a certain time and in a certain place, He's very relevant for our lives and connects with our lives today. Um, so since then, I've, I've, been, I've, I've loved the book of Ruth, and it's a delight to be able to speak on it now. Um, the book of Ruth, as you will know if you've read through it, uh, is about uh, uh, Ruth. It's actually, there's three main characters. There's Ruth, uh, there's the, uh, her mother-in-law, Naomi, and there is Boaz, who ends up being her future husband. Um, it is the, uh, the great love story of the Bible. Um, a romance brews between uh, Ruth and Boaz, and finally in chapter 4, we have a wedding. Um, it, is a, it is a wedding of... Um, it is, it is, it's better than Pride and Prejudice, but it is an ultimate rom-com, because you have Ruth, a poor, uh, widowed <coughs> foreigner, marrying this influential, um, wealthy Israelite Boaz. It's a wonderful story. Um, it's not just a love story though, it is a story of, of redemption, of God's redeeming love. In fact, there's a number of themes that interweave through the story. There's uh, the theme of providence, the theme of uh, kindness, 
the theme of faith and the theme of redemption. And uh, those themes interweave through the story, but we're going to look at each of those themes in turn during the weekend. And the theme I want us to think about in this, uh, this first session is the theme of God's providence. That's what chapter 1 focuses on. What's providence? Well, providence refers to the way that God wisely and powerfully preserves and governs our lives. It's the way that God wisely and powerfully preserves and governs our lives. You see, one of the questions that the book of Ruth asks, uh, and this story asks, is this. How should we think when life is messy? In the midst of the, the jigsaw pieces of life, when the puzzle hasn't been fitted together, when things don't go smoothly, when difficulties arise, when bad things happen, how should we think? Now, here in the book of Ruth, and here in chapter 1, God answers that question, but he doesn't do so by giving us a list of facts, but by telling us a story. A story which about a family and what happens to that family. A story which he wants us to engage with. And if you engage with this story, it will change the way you think, it will change the way you live, and it will change your life. You see, chapter 1 tells us something wonderful about God's providence. It tells us this. It tells us that behind a frowning providence... God hides a smiling face. Behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. Now every good story, like every sermon should, uh, has three parts to it. Um, you've got the uh, introduction, you've got the uh, unravelling of you've got the problem, you've got the unravelling of the problem, and then you've got the solution. That's true in the book of Ruth. Verses 1 to 5 of the introduction, the problem, uh, the conclusion's right at the very end, and you've got the unravelling of the problem all the way through. But here in chapter 1, we also see three parts. There's three things that happen here in chapter 1, each of which happen at a different geographical location, and each of which tells us something about God's providence. So we have here, first of all, the misery of Moab, then the conversion at the crossroads, and then the blessing of Bethlehem. Misery of Moab, the conversion at the crossroads, and the blessing of Bethlehem. First one begins like this, in the days when the judges ruled. Those are ominous words to start a book. The days of the judges, which were 1500 BC to 1100 BC, roughly speaking, were dark days in the life of Israel. Israel had no king, and there was no order, and so everybody did what was right in their own eyes. In verse 1 we're told that there was a famine in the land. Israel was supposed to be a land flowing with milk and honey, a, a land of blessing. And 
it is a land of famine. Bethlehem, the city of Bethlehem, Bethlehem means house of bread, and there was no bread in the house. Something was wrong in Israel. And what was wrong is that the people had turned their back on God. And God had withheld the reins in order to encourage the people to turn back to him. But instead of turning back to him, Elimelech, whose name means God is my king, Naomi, whose name means pleasant, and their family turned their back on God. Turned their back on God's people and God's land. And they go and sojourn in the country of Moab. You see, they see the difficulties in the land. They see the famine. And so, instead of turning back to God, they take matters into their own hands. They fend for themselves. And they, they go and sojourn. That means to stay for a while in Moab, which was a neighbouring country and a neighbouring people who were enemies of God. The Lord had said, separate yourself from these nations and from their gods, but Naomi and her family decided to go and stay there and sojourn there. But their sojourn lasts more than a moment or two. They stay there for ten years. You know, sometimes a person can say, you know, life's, life's, life's hard at the moment. I, I'm just going to take a bit of time out of church. I'm going to take a bit of time out of small group. I'm going to take a bit of time out of being Christian. I'm going to come back to it later on once things get sorted. Well, that short time out might last longer than you think. In fact, you might never come back. That's what happened to Elimelech. He never came back. Tragedy strikes the family, we're told. Verse 3, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And then we're told that Naomi was left with her two sons. Verse 4, these took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. Elimelech dies. Her sons marry Moabite women, which God explicitly told his people not to marry. And then if that wasn't bad enough, Naomi's sons die as well. And so in verse 5, Naomi's left all alone. She's left, we're told, without her two sons and her husband. Naomi's single. She's childless. She's in a foreign land amongst foreign people with foreign gods. She's got no husband, no son, no income, no name, no significance. She's empty, she's penniless. And the name of Elimelech and the name of her family is going to be blotted out of Israel. Because there's no one to carry that name forward. You know, tragedy came into Naomi's life. In a big, big way. Now it's possible to reflect on these verses and to say, you know, well clearly Naomi got what she deserved. 
You know, the reason bad stuff came to her is because she'd been bad. The reason this bad stuff happened was because she turned her back on God. You know, it's possible to say yourself when suffering and trouble comes. Well, you know, the reason I'm suffering is because I must have done something bad. God's punishing me for things that I've done. I'm getting what I deserve. But I don't think you can make that direct correlation. You see, Jesus lived a perfect life. He never did anything wrong, never turned his back on God, never told a lie, never committed a crime. And yet, he suffered awfully and died abandoned on a cross. You can't put a direct correlation between suffering and how somebody lives. Like, clearly, Naomi had made some bad choices and so had her family. And bad choices can lead to bad consequences. But life is complex. God's ways are complex. You can't put suffering down to one specific thing. There's many reasons why suffering comes into our lives. God has ways and means and purposes beyond our understanding. But purposes he does have. Suffering is never random. It's never purposeless. There's an old hymn written by William Cowper, which begins, God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon a storm. The thing about footsteps planted in the sea is they disappear as soon as they are planted there. You cannot see them. And that's the case with God's providence. You see, when it comes to suffering, the important thing for us is not whether you will suffer in your life, because you will. It's part and parcel of this broken world. But how are you going to respond when suffering comes? When you can't see God's purpose in it? You see, suffering can either make you or break you. It can either harden your heart to make it become like a stone, or it can soften your heart to become like a child's play-doh. I've seen both of those things happen in people's lives. I remember talking to a woman and she said, I used to go to church, used to believe in God, but then my uncle died, and now I, I don't believe in God anymore. How can God let that happen? But there's a woman in our church who said to me that, it, that when her daughter died, she turned to God for help and for support. And she, says, she said to me, Paul, I would never have been able to get through that experience without the help of God. See, suffering comes to us all, but the crucial thing is, how are you going to respond when suffering comes into your life, will you shake your fist at God or will you run to him for help and support? That's the first thing we see here is the misery of Moab. But there's a second thing we see about God's providence and that is the conversion 
at the crossroads. The the key to the rest of the chapter is found in one Hebrew word, and it's the word shuv. That's the way we say Hebrew in Blackburn and Manchester. Um, uh, It's the word uh, shuv. It's, um, It's used 12 times in the chapter and nine times in verses 6 to 18, and it's translated in different ways in our English versions. It's translated turn, or return, or brought back. And the word is, a, is an important word in the Old Testament. It's the word used for turning back to God. It's the word used for conversion. And in this uh, section, verses 6 to 18, we see two turnings back to God. First of all, Naomi turns back to God. We're told this in verse 6. Then Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Naomi hears that God is blessing his people again. There's food back in Israel. And so she returns. The famine's over. There's bread again in the house of bread. And she turns back to Bethlehem and turns away from Moab. Turns back to the place of blessing and away from the place of misery. Turns back to the land of life and away from the place of death. That is the picture of repentance. You see, what is repentance? Repentance is turning away from sin and the destruction that sin brings and turning back to God. You know, Naomi had spent 10 years in spiritual wilderness and now she's coming back home. Let me ask, are you in that position? Have you you been running away from God for the past 10 years? Or... Have you been running away from God for the past year? Or in the last month have you been running away from God? Is God calling you to return? Is God calling you to come back out of spiritual wilderness? To come back from living in the land of Moab and the death and destruction that belong to that place and come back to God's people? And the land of life. That happened to a man in our church. uh, A few years ago. He. Was a Christian. And. uh, He he turned his back on God. Left his wife. Left his family. Tried to find himself. Tried to find the, the. The pleasure. Which. Manchester can offer. (laughs) <laughs> he can offer some uh, and, and he spent 20 25 years in spiritual wilderness then Easter Sunday four years ago he turned up at our church and God had brought him he would say home he spent the whole service in tears kept coming back for that first year every Sunday He was crying through the whole service. I asked him afterwards, I said, what was happening? He said, for those 20 years I was in the wilderness, my heart had become like an iceberg. 
And Sunday after Sunday, God was melting the iceberg of my heart and the tears were the example of that. God was bringing me home. It's God calling you to come home this weekend. Naomi turns back to God. But Ruth also turns to God. Naomi decides to go back and uh, her two daughters-in-law come along with her. And they reach a crosswords. I don't know if there was an actual crosswords. But they come to a point on their journey where they sit down and have a conversation. And in verses 8 to 15, Naomi, like a good northern woman, tells it like it is to her daughters-in-law. And doesn't punch, pull any punches whatsoever. She makes it really clear. She says, verse 8, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. She pleads with her daughters-in-law to go back to Moab. She does it again in verse 11. Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Again, verse 18, she says to Naomi, return after your sister-in-law, Orpah. Why does she do that? Because... She sees and thinks that God has made her life bitter. That's what she says. And she says, if you come with me to Bethlehem, if you come with me to God's people, then your life is going to be bitter and hard like mine is. If you come with me to Bethlehem, then you're going to have no regular income. I can't promise you a husband. You're going to have no security. You're going to have no name. You're going to end up being poor and vulnerable. What? Why don't you just go back to your families? You'll be a foreigner in a foreign land. See, what Naomi is saying in these verses is this. Look, there's a stark choice. You can have Bethlehem, you can have Bethlehem and nothing, or Moab and everything. You can have God and nothing, or everything that has, the world has to offer without God. That's the stark choice that Naomi paints. She's saying it's costly to come back to Bethlehem. It's costly to follow the Lord. It's costly to be a Christian. Well, Orpah and Ruth make their choices. Orpah returns to Moab. And Ruth, with one of the most beautiful expressions of faith anywhere in the Old Testament, comes back to Bethlehem. She says this in verse 16. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Your God shall be my God. Ruth is converted at the crossroads. See, what is conversion? What happened to Ruth? What happened to Ruth was this. Conversion is sensing that God must come first in your life. It's sensing that you need to centre your life around Jesus Christ. You see, we all come to Jesus in different ways. Many of us come to Jesus because we feel that there's an emptiness in our life. Uh, we, you know, 
which we need filling up. Come to Jesus because we have problems and difficulties and we need help. But there comes a point in your life where you need to make Jesus Christ number one. When you need to centre your life around him. That's what conversion is. Conversion isn't about believing certain things or practising certain rituals. It's about centering your life on Jesus Christ. Let me ask, have you been converted? Have you put Jesus Christ at the centre of your life? You might say you believe in God. You might say you believe in Jesus. You might come to church. But have you put Jesus on the throne of your heart? Or are you here this morning actually at the crossroads? Maybe you've been coming to church for a while. Maybe you've been brought by a friend or a family member. And you've heard lots of teaching about Jesus Christ. And you think, well, this might be right. But you're undecided about whether to turn to God and commit yourself to him or not. You're at the crossroads. You don't know whether to turn back to Moab and to, to the gods of, of, of money and, and sex and, and power and the things that the world lives for. Or whether actually to turn to Bethlehem and to commit yourself to God. But if you're in that position, can I just encourage you to stop and think? Christianity is for thinking people. You need to weigh up the cost of being a Christian. It's costly to go back to Bethlehem. It's costly to follow the Lord. It's not a case of become a Christian and everything's going to go well for you and life's going to be sorted and, and you won't be any difficulties and it's, it's going to be a much better life. What you're called to is Bethlehem and nothing. Jesus said to his disciples, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. That's the call of Christianity. Don't rush into Christianity. Stop and think and consider the cost. But as you do that, look at this book. Because as we will see in this chapter and as we will see in the book, the cost is worth it. It's so worth it. God and nothing is far better than all the pleasures of Moab. Or Manchester. Or London. But there's a third thing about God's providence which we see. And that is the blessings of Bethlehem. Look at verse 19. The writer says, So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? Naomi's returned home 10 years after leaving and she must have looked so sad because the women hardly recognise her. They say, could this be Naomi? Is this the same person who left? Look what 10 years in the wilderness has done to her. Naomi says, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, Mary, bitter, 
for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Naomi's empty and she feels empty. She's sad. Life hasn't turned out the way she wanted or expected or planned. She believes in God, but she doesn't believe that he's good. She says, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Naomi can't see God's good hand in her circumstances. She can't see that God is good. She can't see God's loving providence in her life. She thinks God's treated her badly. God's let her down. God's judging her, perhaps because she's turned her back on him. She feels empty. But God is at work. See, even though she feels completely empty, she's not. First of all, she's back in Bethlehem. You know, God has brought her home, brought her back to the house of bread. And she's come back at barley harvest. When Naomi left, there was a famine, but now God has visited his people again. And she's brought back Ruth the Moabite. Ruth's been converted. You know, that is no small potatoes. An enemy of, of God's people has been converted. You know, sometimes it's only through one person's pain that another person gets blessed. It's only through your suffering that another person <coughs> comes to God. And when one person is converted like that, it can have a big impact on a, on a town or a city. It can have a big impact on a church. But Naomi couldn't see those things. She's blind to the goodness of God. You know, that's what suffering does. Suffering can blind us to God's goodness and love. It can blind us to what God is doing. The good things he's working out in your life, you can be blind to. See, when we suffer, we, we struggle so often to see the goodness of God. But that doesn't stop God being good. We can struggle to see how God is working his providence out, but he is working his providence out. You know, the clouds of pain and bitterness can hide the sun. But the sun is still shining. You see, God is a good God with good purposes for your life, whether you see those or whether you don't. But he, he often works in ways that you do not expect and would not plan for yourself. See, what is God's way of working? What is, what is his modus operandi? Well, God's way of working is that the way up is down. The, the, death is the way to life. Salvation comes out of destruction. Light comes out of darkness. Hope comes out of despair. Joy comes out of sorrow. That's the way God works. God takes messed up things and sorts them out. God, God takes things that are completely broken and brings them back together and mends them and makes them good once again. See, it's in the mess, it's in the brokenness, it's in the suffering that he's creating something good and beautiful. 
Diamonds are formed, as you know, deep down in the earth. The rearrangement of carbon atoms under intense pressure and heat to bring out something beautiful, something sparkling. So it's the same in your life. It's in the pressure. It's in the heat of stress and suffering and pain and that God is rearranging your life to bring out something more precious and valuable than a diamond. How do you know that's going to happen? How can you be sure that's what God's doing? Because a thousand years after this story, another blessing would come out of Bethlehem. It'd be the greatest blessing that ever came out of Bethlehem. It'd be the blessing of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And he would be a blessing not just to one person or a family, but he'd be a blessing to the world. And he'd be a blessing through his death. Through his death, he would bring life to the world. See, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died to take upon himself all the sins in our lives, all the ways we've turned away from God. And he was hung up on that cross, on that tree. The Bible says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He was cursed on the cross so that you could be blessed. He was cursed for your sins. He was cursed for all the ways you've turned away from God. And he received the punishment that you deserved. So that if you look to him and put your trust in him, the blessing of God can come to you. You can be right with God and you can know God's blessing in your life. You can know that God loves you with an unconditional, never stopping, never giving up love. See, if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you can know for sure that God loves you, that God is with you in the good times and in the bad, and that God cares for you, and that God will bring you through, even through the valley of the shadow of death. He will be with you. His rod and his staff will come for you. See, you can be sure that because he sent his son to die for you, he won't withhold anything good from you. But in fact, all things in your life will work out for your good. Good things will work out for your good. Bad things will work out for your good. In fact, you can know for sure that the bad things, the dark times in your life, are not thwarting God's good purposes for your life, but they're the means of bringing them about. God was with Naomi in her troubles and in her suffering, bringing about good, and he will do the same for you. He will, be bring, he will bring good out of bad, light out of dark, hope out of despair, joy out of sorrow. He will do those things for you. And all those things will work together for your good. He wants you to believe that. He wants you to know that. He wants you to trust him for that. He wants you to know that he is, as, he is as with you in the dark as he is in the light. He wants you to know that and to believe that. That old hymn I quoted earlier continues with these words. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence... God hides a smiling face. Yes, he does. Let me pray.
Father, we thank you that you are a God who cares for us and that you are a God who wisely governs and preserves our lives. Help us to believe that. For those here this morning particularly who are going through the mill, Lord, we pray that you'd help them to believe that though they can't see the sun, it's still shining. Though they can't feel the warmth of your love, you're still there. Help us to believe that behind a friending providence, you hide a smiling face. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.